0: Greetings ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this batch video of the narration of the web novel Undead, taken from the website Royal Road. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 31 To Rule The necromancer went to the window, watching the distant figures of Vanilleth and Orimo. Just when they were nearing this resolution, Eve had fled, as expected, he was a creature that longed for the light and feared it all the same. It was his existence, his own division of mind. It seemed that they both had their divisions to contend with. They couldn't continue like this. As the ghoul grew in intelligence, his personality grew as well. His brand, whatever path he walked, had begun its work on him. Right now, he was under the divide between monster and man. Eventually, he would need to decide his course of action— To do this, he would have to face her. It was unavoidable. Impatience, that was something he shared in common with the previous owner of his body. She had thought there was an annoying trait of his when he was alive, but seeing it in his creature now gave her mixed feelings. She wished that she could live like this forever, gazing out a window at the man she had known for most of her life. The boy that she might have married had events taken a different course but this was the role of the youngest version of her, the dreamer, the wishful girl who gazed into lakes and imagined worlds. The dreamer was her weakest self. The oldest version of her, the necromancer, had tried to destroy him, and that version of her was the only one that could remember what was the most important. She let the others. That version, nameless but far her title, was her strongest self, Even now, she felt the dissatisfaction in the back of her mind. She didn't like the dreamer much. In the distance, Arimo and Vanlith began to fight. She frowned. There was only so much dust left, and it wasn't easy to acquire more. Especially here. Heating undead was not cheap. She shook her head. What was it about the ghoul that reminded her so much of Van? His impatience, his stubbornness, all of his worst traits... Was that all he had been? A mix of base emotions? Is that what remained? Man had died two years ago. The severing of his filament, his life thread, was confirmed. His true soul had departed this world and left the spirit in its wake. True souls were like that. They hated the mortal plane. They always longed to go up there, to join whatever it was that waited them beyond. The filament of the only thing keeping them here... A hair-thin tether nailed down the life and severed by act of death. Redundancy, that was important to rule for a necromancer. She understood redundancy. If anything Van remained, it would be only pieces of his spirit, the redundant layer of his soul. How many fragments of the spirit had persisted the entire two years since his demise? Enough for him to retain some of his traits. But fragments were just that. Fragments. They were just useful for fuel to create a new undead, but they weren't the person. They could never be a person. Orimo was one example of this. His spirit remained whole, likely due to some interference in the path of the Deathstone in Vanillith. He appeared to only casual observer to be the same Orimo as the hunter had been in life. He walked like him, spoke like him, though perhaps his personality was a bit freer after the loss of his brand. But the ghoul wasn't Orimo, not by a long shot. That much was clear when she found him outside of his resurrection, eating the flesh of a former villager from the pile of ruined bodies, and looked in immense satisfaction on his face. Ah, <sighs> She had noticed, but it seemed that the oldest definition of herself had returned at some point. Farewell for now, dreamer. The day after the rematch with Orimo, Vanillus sat on his back on the giant boulder that marked the Necromancer's abode. He was on the side of the rock that faced the west, opposite of the cottage. The larger boulder provided an effective barrier against the bustle of the undead camp. Most of the evolved ghouls had been put to task of gathering the remaining undead that were scattered around the valley and after one day, over fifty lesser ghouls had gathered there, turning the previously silent plains noisy. It was easier when the undead were all catatonic and a resting state, but something about being near the necromancer had them worked up. She could have demanded that they remain still, but for some reason, she didn't seem to care. Now, he was alone at last. Here, at the center, the valley appeared as a great bowl though he knew from his time in the northern past that it was more teardrop-shape. To the west, he could see the waterfall near the village of uh, Bowling, was it? Haramo had spoken of the various villages earlier, not that their names mattered now that they were destined to become runes. Vanillith closed his eyes and allowed his thoughts to drift, training conceptualization, or at least reaching a new understanding with it was the task that he'd embarked on. In the past, the skill had improved during quiet moments like this, when he was able to delve into his own mind and forget himself. He allowed ten breaths to pass, though he had to count them mentally as he didn't actually breathe. He couldn't quite get the timing right when he tried forcing it. He lacked the instinctive rhythm of living creatures, so he focused on mental count. And he worked, his body slowly refining to a laser focus, extraneous thoughts evaporating like moths in a flame. He worked through the events of the past few days in reverse order. He was searching for something to latch onto. The past day had performed sword drills incessantly. He watched himself doing the exercises from the detached perspective, noting things that he hadn't been aware of before. There were some imperfections in his stance, Perhaps some attacks had better follow through than he had missed. Other than that, he saw other things going on in the background, things that he had ignored at the time. One such thing was Kalakai, who stood a few dozen paces away, practicing with his spear. He drooled, perhaps influenced by vandalist state of mind, though, if anything, his movements appeared to be more fluid and refined than his master's. Was even his peon more skilled than him? And with a guard of class at that, Vanleth would have to watch for longer, but there wasn't much he could learn from the show of spearmanship, not as he was now. He went on, further into his past. At first, he'd been surprised the moment the detail had locked away in his head. It was almost like he remembered more than he saw in the moment, though he knew this quite wasn't true. It was simply that there were certain things he didn't care about in the present. He had been aware of the kalakai yesterday, but he hadn't paid the ghoul any mind. The rematch with Arimo had been exhausted already. It was the only thing he had thought during the past day. He played through every moment of the fight dozens of times, searching for a weakness in Arimo. There were remarkably few. He went further back, he saw the grove, the trees smashed as a result of his rage, Then, the eye, the false ritual. He went back, back, until he was standing by a brook, observing a masked animu who dragged behind him a dead hunter. For some reason, this was the scene that he'd latched onto. It wasn't a fight, nor anything was considered a major event. There was simply a memory of animu and his prey, the hunter that ran. That was what he lingered on. The man had been savaged by the ghoul, and he was headless, missing an arm. Why was this memory he settled on? It was the kill that allowed Anamu to evolve. Was that why it drew him? No. The memory wasn't about Anamu. The hunter that ran. Why had he fled? Fear. Perhaps seeing his comrades fall all around him finally broke him. He ran from the battle because his resolve failed him. But that was a dichotomy. From what Vanlith saw in the hunters on the front lines, not a single one of them had feared death. They practically threw themselves at the undead. Even Vanillith hadn't cowed them, though those unbending men had been an incarnation of death. That was what had bothered him. If these men cared so little for their own lives, why had one of their number fled into the mountains? The pieces slowly connected. Orimo... It had been Orimo who held them together, those who-hunters who could act fearlessly because they had a leader they trusted unconditionally at their backs. Orimo had been the only thing holding the band of men together when the undead charged them, their rallying point. Somehow, his presence inspired them a resolve to face death, and once he was killed, that resolve shattered. To lead, it was a concept packed with significance. Vanillith had his own experience with leading back at the prison. He had devised a plan, sending the ghouls in to spook the humans. In several other instances, he had used the undead. But had he led them, could you lead creatures as dense as ghouls? Or could you only push them from behind like a slave driver? Like the necromancer? What did it mean to lead? A part of him knew why he was thinking of all of these things. It had to do with his titles, as well as one of his skills. Rex, you have manifested the shape of a conqueror through the act of overbearing will. One of the three noble titles, Rex, is the point of the spear, the king of war. You become adept at imposing your will on others. Stratum 1. Dominate, a skill that he'd earned later, shared one phrase in common with the title. Because adept at imposing a will on others. That similarity couldn't be coincidence. RMO had explained titles to him the day previously. Many titles had invisible effects in addition to the effects described. These were things like becoming more likely to learn certain skills or having access to different class selections when they were ranking up. Plenty of titles held invisible, indefinable effects. They were also apparently given at random. Different branded performing the actions of their predecessors would not often get the title for their efforts, despite fulfilling the arbitrary requirements that the first person who earned it had. Arimo explained that he had to do with suitability. He had called it a person's destiny. But Vanalith knew such words weren't useful to understanding anything. If Orimo were to be believed, this made it Vanlet's destiny to rule. It was a superstition, essentially the equivalent of claiming that invisible spirits caused all natural phenomena. But what did it mean to impose his will? Was it simply what he'd been doing up until now? Commanding the weak-minded. But what about when the subjects could lead themselves? Hanamu and Kanakai had intelligence far surpassing their former selves, in time, more would likely follow suit. Perhaps ghouls like Iokina would rise up into positions of command. Current methods would only take him so far. Could he push forward, forcing those even more intelligent than him to follow his directions? What if that led them to their destruction? Everyone had a different methods of rule. Arimo had been a leader. "'Not a king. He was a brand of brothers. He had proven himself time and time again, and for this he commanded the respect of the hunters. This method had its limits. His men wouldn't have followed him had he ordered them to kill their families, for instance. Arimo led as long as he fit the image of him and the hunters held in their minds. It wasn't a true, inherent form of command, but one contingent on many factors.' The true leader had been whatever ideal each hunter held in their hearts. In other words, there was no leader. And that meant that some of the hunters had broken when Oromo fell. And that was one thing that all types of leadership had in common with one another. If the leader fell, everything crumbled down. Perhaps if another, stronger hunter had stepped forward, it could have been prevented. But none had been Oromo's equal. Take the way the necromancer operated, if RMO's men followed him because he represented a greater ideal, homeland, family, and whatever was most important to them, then she was the opposite. She ruled because she herself was the center, because Banleth hadn't been fighting for his own reasons or ideals, but for hers alone, for her ambition, if the necromancer had died when he was in that state, what would he have done? he would have lost his way. A ruler was not a simple leader. A ruler was the center of everything. A ruler was a king, someone who held their own goals above the goals of any other. That was a king. It didn't matter if he had subordinates or not. It didn't even matter if he failed. All that mattered was that king was the law unto himself, that he had no greater ruler. But even if Vanillith thought himself a ruler, he knew so little. He wanted more. He wanted to know what lay beyond the mountains. He wanted to know what secrets of necromancy and the limits of his strength. He wanted to kill a god. He knew what he needed to do. Vanillith's steps up to the cottage were firm. The lesser ghouls packed before the entrance in a bid to get close to the necromancer as possible, Parted before him like water. During the time he'd been training, over a dozen more had joined their ranks. Her forces were building. Vanilith wondered just how many people had lived in this valley, and whether, as lesser ghouls, they would prove much use at all. Just spinning out the ranks was useful enough, he supposed, and every lesser had a chance to evolve. He entered the building to find the woman sitting on the floor of a cottage, eyes closed in meditation. She no longer had the needles protruding from her body, though he saw wounds in the flesh where they had been. A floorboard creaked and he stepped forward, and she opened her eyes. Vanillith! Wonderful timing! I just completed the tuning process. Iokina went out to gather more ghouls, so the process should speed up considerably. Have you given thought to my question? She wanted to know if he had decided his course of action. He had... He did not know she was more powerful than him, but it wouldn't do to antagonize the woman needlessly. Watching her reaction, he spoke carefully. I will not serve. She maintained a politely inquisitive gaze. He continued, I will not serve, but I will join hands with you. Know that my peons and I are not yours to command. However, when our interests align, we can aid one another. She was manipulative, he couldn't trust her, this woman who had tried to command him and when that failed had attempted to destroy him, but she couldn't touch him with the fear that the eye's owner looming overhead. Perhaps it was foolish to rely on something as treacherous as the will of a being like the dread sovereign, especially when Vanilless sought to ultimately remove himself from the being's influence, but this wasn't all that he was going to rely on. He would simply become powerful enough that he would have nothing to fear from her. Another reason he chose not to depart was because this woman already had a plan to foil the enclave. Vanillith didn't delude himself into thinking that he could face them down right now, or even escape them should they send out a hunt, which was apparently quite likely. Arimo had spoken to some of the enclave. If he were to be believed, Arimo was an ordinary amongst the hunters there—simply average, neither strong nor weak. There were dozens like him, and dozens more who were even stronger. And at the top stood a few individuals so powerful that even Arimo didn't know their tier. And many of these branded were specialized hunters and trackers. Horimo said that even he couldn't escape the hunt organized by the enclave. And the most important reason Vanillus didn't choose to leave was because of her. The necromancer was the only one who could make more dead. If he left, he had no way to make new troops, so he would accompany her, learning her secrets, training, and growing. What he did afterwards, well, that was up to him— he would decide when that time approached. She hummed. An alliance, hm? That's right, an alliance. The necromancer rose, sticking out her hand. I would be pleased to have you aboard, she said. You can call me Relica. I look forward to our partnership. Her fingers, long and slender, were calloused from years of work. Vanillith grasped the hand, noting that their body temperatures were now very nearly the same she no longer had a warmth of a human relicah he said feeding the word it rolled around his tongue comfortably as if he'd always known it end of chapter chapter 32 the cursed blessing lay woke up wincing and feeling the frost crackling across her eyelashes She was supposed to keep her head tucked away in the bedroll, and her instinctive dislike of being smothered ensured that she always woke up with her head exposed to the mountain air. She rubbed her eyes, causing flakes and ice to rain down. She probably wouldn't have had any eyelashes left by the time they made it to the enclave. Kai was already up and warming up some food over the fire. It would be another couple of minutes before he was done— so she ducked into her, um, or rather Kai's, bedroll and tucked her face into the crook of her elbow to warm it up. It felt like the skin had frozen solid, but after a few minutes she began to thaw. She did not know why she bothered, as even though she got out of bed, she'd be frozen again anyway. Sighing, she climbed out too chill to stretch, though she yearned to. Who would have thought that she would ever miss the straw mat back in the hut in Yayo? At least it had been warm, especially when the fire was roaring. She shivered. Kai saw Lei walking at the campfire and gave her a tight smile. Breakfast will be ready soon. If you're going into the woods, don't go far. I scouted around. There's no signs of any predators. But this is Jawe territory. She nodded. Jaways, wolf-like monsters with short snouts and a bite that could pulverize bone. She had never seen one, nor did she particularly wish to. If they were still in the passes above the cradle, they wouldn't have had to worry about them, since the griffins kept all other monsters at bay. But griffin territory didn't expand past the rim of the cradle. Even if they were still back at home, she wasn't safe from the griffins, since she wore no bonnet. Without the hunter's plumage displaying the red and yellows of baby griffins, the monsters would swoop down and carry her off like if she was a goat— This realization did little to instill confidence in her. Did Griffins leave their territory? She never asked. She crept out of the camp, listening to the sounds that she didn't recognize. After the morning ritual, she hurried back to the small clearing in record time. Kai handed her a skewer with a chunk of meat, then sat on a rock and began tearing into his own. They joined him. The two of them had fallen into a rhythm of thoughts. They were a tacit agreement between them not to speak of anything beyond their current circumstances. The route that they were taking, when they were stopped for a meal, how far they were from their destination, and other things related to the journey. Lay was, if not happy, at least satisfied with this arrangement. On the first day, the compromise hadn't been in place. Leigh stared at her hand in a daze and was red, remarkably red. It was the red of her mind, like somehow her emotions had left the interior of her skull and plastered themselves in her skin. A false brand. She had always wanted a brand. She had hoped for diligence, maybe temperance, like a father. But what was this? What did this mark represent? No... What if she was wrong? This could just be some mad coincidence. What if this wasn't a brand at all, but something else entirely? She could prove it, Arimo explained to her, once what summons C-Status was like. They brought up her memory, ignoring the painful spike that thinking of him drove into her heart. She mentally demanded her information to appear. If this didn't work, then it would mean it wasn't a brand after all. She didn't even consider until later that a false brand might behave differently. Hope leapt into her heart when nothing happened after a moment. But then it appeared. Name, Lei Fan. Titles, none. Class, none. Levels, none. Skills, none. Statistics, Strength, 5. Vitality, 8. Stamina, 11. Agility, 12. Dexterity, 9. Picks, 1. Vapor, 0. Her voice broke in her out in a horrified reverie. Is that, uh. Kai had seen a brand. She hurriedly clasped her hand over the mark, holding it on her chest, eyeing the man like she might turn on her, but he didn't even notice the suspicious look. A blessing, he murmured. Even now, in our darkest night, Father Mountain watches over us. His voice was shaky. He didn't know, Leigh realized. He didn't know about the false brands. Probably only other brander who were told about them. Her father mentioned something about a secret knowledge, hadn't he? Lei didn't reply to Guy. She focused on walking behind the man, struggling not to trip in the nearly complete blackness of night. One foot in front of another, and on, and on. She welcomed the monotonous task. It helped her keep her mind off the father. Don't think about it. Don't think. Don't. When they finally stopped, Lei was too exhausted to move another step. Guy set up a quick camp in a rocky outcropping, where they would then be hidden from searching eyes. There was no campfire this night. He acted unsure, treating her like some delicate piece of pottery, as if the slightest push might break her. Had she made that much of a scene earlier? They asked him for a wife. He hesitated, but handed one over when she held out a palm. She began to cut the length of material from a sleeve of a shirt. What are you doing? he asked. Are you hurt? She didn't speak. Wrapping her hand lightly in the fabric, he watched for a moment. That's a blessing, child, he said. You're not injured, that's the..." She cut him off, her voice hoarse. Have you ever heard of a red brand? She tied off the knot and turned to stare at the hunter. He looked to take him back. No, he murmured. No, I haven't. Why is it red? What does it mean? Lay took a deep breath. Papa told me some things about these, she said. And it's not a brand. Don't act like it is. What is it? "'It's—it's a curse. "'Please don't tell anyone that I have this thing on my hand.' "'Could she trust him? "'Oroo seemed to, but with him—with him not here, would Kai stay true?' "'A curse, Leigh, then we need to hurry to the enclave.' "'He stood up as if they were going to pack up camp that very instant. "'The shaman will—' "'A thrill of fear ran through her at those words. "'Listen to me,' she interjected a little too loudly— "'What would happen if you really went to the leaders? "'What would they do to her?' "'She tried again, more quietly. "'You can't tell anybody. "'Please! "'It's not a normal curse. "'This thing can't be removed.' "'Kai was silent for a moment. "'He looked nervous. "'If you say so, Lay, "'but I still think it would be better if we let them know. "'Did your papa, did, did he say if the curse was dangerous?' Lei chewed on her lip. "'Should she reveal any more?' What if Kai decided to abandon her after learning about what it meant to have one of these marks? Did she even know what it meant to have one of them? If she didn't impress upon him the importance of the secret, he might go behind her back once they reached the enclave and doom her to a simple feeling of concern. She had to make the plunge. It is not dangerous as long as I'm careful, I think, Kai, she said, calling him by his name. If you tell anyone in the enclave about this mark of my hand, I think they will kill me. That is why you have to keep it a secret. He didn't ask any more questions. Thus began the silent trek through the mountains. Despite Vanellus' decision to join hands with the necromancer named Relica, not much had changed. There was over a week before they had to depart the cradle, so he spent his time training. He ordered Kalakai and Anamu to train as well, stating that if his own growth was delayed they wouldn't belong for this world. The approach hadn't worked quite as well as intended. Kalakai was simple. He didn't react to the threat well. Vanillith was starting to see that he reacted almost to nothing. A ghoul continued to draw with his spear. But it was the same sedate pace as before. In combat, Vanillith had seen the spear strike like lightning. Now his movements were sluggish. Precise, but lethargic. However, he was only a ghoul, not yet evolved to a third tier like Animu and himself. Vanleth remembered all too well the sluggishness that threatened to overtake him when he was in a lesser undead. That sleep-like stupor was a powerful opponent when no tempting prey was around. On the other hand, Anamu reacted with excess of motivation. The instant Vanleth related the order, he became a flurry of limbs and motion. The problem wasn't his drive. No, it was the ghoul had no idea what training was. Currently, he was copying Kalakai's motions poorly, perhaps holding out with the philosophy of hard work surpassing talent. Of course, he wielded no spear, so it looked rather like he was energetically dancing with a ghost. If I be Kanakai, I will not die first. Ah. His true thoughts came forward. Vanless began to realize that he hadn't paid the peons much attention. Something changed in him after his odia introspection, and he realized that he wouldn't be able to effectively rule others without at least understanding them first. That became clear while watching the duo. But this, this was tiring. He still wanted to focus on his own skills for a while longer. Losing to Orimo had made him realize that he had a no long way to go. Perhaps he could dump this work on someone else. Baneleth approached Orimo, who were currently organizing squads of undead alongside Ayakina. The two of them had taken positions of leadership amongst Relica's undead. Laikina was the one mainly ordering the ghouls around, while Oremo acted as a more of an advisor. The groups were five or six strong, each led by an evolved ghoul, so that there was some capacity for complexity in the commands that they were given. They were in the middle of teaching the undead certain phrases that corresponded to his set of actions. The command phrases were simple words, sometimes paired with a modifier. Go there, quiet, attack that, protect this, and so on. Orimo was going around correcting the undead by steering them like puppets when they messed up with an order. He turned to Vanleth, scratching his temple with his finger. Train your purons. Sorry, that doesn't fall under our agreement, Vanleth said. "I thought as much, but do you have any key advice, at least for the idiotic one? Orimo scratched his chin. Hmm, Anamu, that kid was always a bit of a roody. I remember one time when he swapped out old Moke's washing water with a bucket of goat piss. <laughs> you know, I didn't see so much humor in it at the time, but it's far funnier to me now that I'm looking back. I should have asked how he procured the, uh, ha! Huh, what's with that look? Fine, fine, I'll ask the mistress about helping you out a little. You need permission to give me advice, Van Luth asked. Horimo replied. Not really. She gives me more free reign than most of the others. Handing out advice doesn't go against her orders, but uh, I'm just asking to make sure helping you train those peons isn't going to go against some secret agenda of hers. Not that I think it is, but you know how she can be. The hunter waved a hand and walked off. The man really did speak his mind when he wanted to. Come to think of it, Anamu was similarly uninhibited with his tongue, though the savage ghoul's chatter was more inane. Was it a trend among schools to be free with their words? No. One look at Aikina proved that that wasn't the case. He knew that she was capable of speaking by the way that she was currently ordering the ghouls around, but he had never heard her engage in conversation. She was even called a proto-screamer by Relica. Whatever that meant, she certainly didn't scream much. As for the others evolved ghouls, Karakai was a quiet one, and Vanilith himself preferred silence over noise. Perhaps ghouls simply had their own preferences. While Horimo was gone, Vanilith inspected the other undead. Most of the ghouls who were sent out earlier had returned to take part in these drills. He approached one of them. He recognized it as the hunters that he had slain in the preliminary ambush before taking on the main hunting force. This was a spirit that had been absorbed by the Deathstone— now, it was a simple lesser ghoul. Vanillith waved a hand in front of the subject's face. The ghoul gave a bleary blink, turning his gaze briefly to him before returning to stare at the ground. Not all undead were created equally. Why was Arimo so superior to the others upon his resurrection? Was it because he had been a branded? Was it better materials? A stronger wool? Back to the grey world. Arimo mentioned something. This had happened after Vanlith compared him to the other two hunters that he'd killed and absorbed. Those souls could do nothing but stand in the place that they had died, muttering words of hate. The crunching footsteps behind him made Vanlith turn. She says that it's fine for me to help your peons, harimo said, but only after we get the rest of the ghouls to understand the eight basic commands. Vanleth nodded absentmindedly. harimo what strength of spirit that you mentioned before. Ah, you're asking me why I'm different than the others, right? Like this fellow here, he asked, nodding towards the cool Vanillith was expecting. That's right. Our people, the children of the mountain, have a story that might help explain that. Come, walk with me. Vanillith fell into step alongside the hunter. Aokina was one giving the orders to the trainees, so Orimo walked while he talked. In the time before the first grass seeded this valley, when the world was only ice and snow, Mother Sky and Earth below were the only gods we knew. Mother Sky loved Earth below, but her love was a stifling thing. She couldn't bear to part from the land, so she lay upon it, much like how our clothes drape over our own bodies. But she did not harm the land like our clothes warm us. Do you see these mountains above us? Up and up the higher they go, the colder it becomes. When Mother Sky rested on the ground, the entire world was like this mountain top. Not water flowed, no seeds sprouted. Her embrace was cold and dead, and all warm loving creatures existed deep down, where the frost did not reach. Orimo paused to shove another ghouls who didn't obey Aikina's down command. He surveyed the rest of the ghouls, nodding and continued with his story. The enclave was all their ancestors knew. In those days, Father Mountain was a man like you and I were, but one who lived his entire life underground. One day, he looked up at his people, their small and wiry frames, skin pale from lack of sunlight. He felt pain, knowing that if only they had been allowed to spread their wings, they could do so much more. After seeing the graves of generations upon generations of their forefathers who only ever known hard rock and stone overhead, he decided that he would venture out to find Mother Sky and ask her why she kept the world from them. Many men had gone before the same purpose, but most never came back. Those who returned to the enclave brought tales of foggy cold so chilling that it made them forget who they were. Father Mountain knew these tales, so when he went, he went with the resolution to never forget. Towards this purpose, he went to the smith and had him use an iron brand in his name and his flesh. That way, if he began to forget himself, all he needed to do was look down at the brand and remember. Father Mountain left the enclave. He walked the frozen land on the first day. His skin turned blue and the frost settled over his shoulders. He carried on... On the second day, a numbness wormed its way into his ears, nose, and throat. He carried on. On the third day, he couldn't move his hands or feel his feet. Now the cold reaching his spirit, it dulled his mind, slowing the pace of his feet. It took Father mountain three days to reach this point, when other men would succumb in hours. When this happened, he did not give in. He looked down at the brand in his flesh and recalled his promise. He carried on. The wind howled and the icicles grew on his beard. His whole sky tried to make his spirit forget, but he did not. He began to change. He fought for the cold of Mother Sky, for his footsteps grew firmer and he stride longer. Some say that he walked for weeks, some say months, or even years. But what we all know is that eventually his head broke through the cold. He looked down and to find that he now stood on above Mother Sky. She swirled around his legs like a bank of fog that stretched on forever. He learned at that moment that he could not speak with her. He couldn't accomplish what he was set out to do, speak to Mother Sky. But now he was a giant who loomed over the entire world. He had conquered a god and in the process become one himself. While the mountain reached down and picked up Mother Sky, he lifted her overhead separating her from the earth for the first time allowing life which had before only been limited to the underworld to spread out on the surface mother sky now that she did not smother us released her life giving snow and rain and gave birth to the seasons father mountain continued to watch over his children giving the worthy amongst them his brands these brands like him are said to possess true strength of spirit when they pass on, they become mountains themselves, growing the world. Well, that's how the story goes, anyway. Vandalith allowed the moment of silence to pass before he spoke. That was a roundabout way of explaining why you haven't changed much to dying. Aramon laughed. In your rung, you aren't considered a man until you tell a good story. It's been a while since I last tried it. I was worried I'd lost my flair. You're saying that the Brands are some sort of anchor and you didn't forget yourself, just like Father Mountain didn't when he was walking the surface long ago. The hunter shrugged. That's what the story wants to tell you. I don't think the Brands are exactly that sort of blessing. What do you mean? There are plenty of other stories that go on to speak about Brands and Father Mountain. The way of these tales go, you're led to think the Brands are like something that you turn you into a demigod. They all follow the same pattern." A hero finds himself facing a trial, Father Mountain gives him a brand, and he conquers the trial. But I've never thought of my brand that way. Father Mountain didn't become a god because he branded himself. He became a god because he faced death and the desolation of his spirit and won. If he wants his children to grow, then he wouldn't give them a simple blessing like that. I never heard of anyone else who thought this way, but as for me... I believe the brands are a trial, much like the cold of Mother Sky was to Father mountain. We must conquer the brands that are attempting to mold our spirits. That is how we grow. If you fail, you are no better than a normal human. No, you would be even less. End of chapter And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.